Father, we ask that as we open up our Bibles, that you would open up our hearts and our minds and that you would speak by your spirit. And we pray that you would make us into a listening and an obedient people. Father, open our eyes so that we could see your beauty. Open our hearts so that we could attend to your call. Open up our lives so that our lives might be conformed to your will for us in this world so that we could honor you and glorify you how we live. And we pray that you would use this time that we spend in your word to that end for your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. So Vince Lombardi was the legendary football coach of the Green Bay Packers about 50 years ago. By the way, from every now and again, because I almost always use surfing illustrations, I have to kind of wade out into waters that I'm completely unfamiliar with, namely football. But Vince Lombardi, legendary football coach for the Green Bay Packers about 50 years ago, he of course is considered by many to be the greatest football coach of all times and maybe one of the greatest coaches of all times in any sport. And as the story goes, at the beginning of every season, at the first practice of the year, he would hold up a football and say this, gentlemen, this is a football. Now, what was he doing in that moment? He, of course, is not providing any new information. These are professional athletes. They have no doubt been handling this ball, in many cases, ever since they were four or five years old. They know what a football is. But of course, this was his way of going back and hitting reset every year, going back and reminding them of the fundamentals of who they are and of what they were doing on the field. It was his way of going back to basics, going back to square one. And the text that we're going to look at today is really Jesus's way of going back to the basics. It's his way of holding up it before us saying, guys, this is the church, this is who you are, and this is what you are to be about in this world. And so beginning today in the next few weeks, we're going to be unpacking together Jesus's vision for us as a church. We're going to be attending to what Jesus says is our vocation, our calling in this world. And I want to do this together over the next few weeks for a few reasons. Number one, because we are finally nearing a time when it looks like uh, our, we're going to reach herd immunity, uh, vaccinations are going to be uh, you know, spreading all over. It looks like by the end of May, it should be available for every adult in America. That's incredibly good news, isn't it? We could clap for that even. That's like great news, you know? And it was cool. I was listening to a sermon a couple weeks ago, and the sermon title was, It's Time to Dream Again. And I was thinking about that in relationship to our series in the wilderness. And I was thinking that, you know, the wilderness is a nice place to visit, but it's not where you want to live. Uh, the wilderness might be necessary to walk through, but it's not where you want to build a home. What you want to do is you want to go into the promised land. You know, and I can imagine that uh, for the children of Israel, when they were wandering in the wilderness, that they were in survival mode. And many of us have been in survival mode over the last year. 
And our church has been in some ways in survival mode over the last year, though I will say that some great headway has been made in spite of all of that, and not least of which is this service that we've been able to have in the middle of our community together over this last year. But you know, um, God's will is not for us simply to survive. His will is for us ultimately to take new ground together. And, you know, as we enter into what will be a new season into spring and then into summer and then hopefully into fall, you know, we are moving into a new time and a new place for the work that God has given us to do as a church. And it is time for us to dream again. And so number one, I want us to take a fresh look at Jesus's vision for our church so that as we dream about our future, as we dream about what's next, our dreams might be infused with the words of Jesus and what his heart is for our church. But secondly, uh, I wanted to talk about uh, this text because today, as Pastor Robert mentioned earlier, is the one-year anniversary of what was for us Commitment Sunday. Now, I know many of you, you're new to this church family and you started attending uh, these outdoor services just in the last year. Well, a year ago, we had just completed a capital campaign where we were casting vision for our church about uh, raising funds to invest in renovations for our facility, as well as some budgetary expansions. Because what we said again and again is that although this church has an incredible past, Uh, We believe God doesn't just want us to celebrate the past. He wants us to invest in the future. And just stop and think about this. We are here in this backyard right now because somebody or a group of people about 20, 30 years ago raised funds and invest in this space right now. And we get to enjoy this incredible environment to do the mission of God because people invested in this place. And so just as generations before us believed in the future and invested in the future, so too our church family gathered together believing in the future and we made a commitment to invest in our future. And a year ago on that Commitment Sunday, we not only hit our goal for commitments, we exceeded it by 10%. And that was incredibly, incredibly exciting. But hey, the week we were gonna announce it to you all, we went into lockdown And that was a little bit disappointing (laughs) for those of us, especially who have poured so much time and effort and energy into this whole thing. You know, but but look, um, simply because we have been in COVID for the last year, it doesn't mean that the mission of God has been stuck in isolation, has been put on pause. God still has a future for us. He still has work for us to invest in. And so what we want to do over these next few weeks is just kind of revisit the vision that God has given us. And I want to show you some pictures for those of you you can see on the screens. Uh, This is cool. These are shots from our Commitment Sunday. And it was such a beautiful day to see so many of us just jump up out of our seats and to come forward and just make a financial investment in the mission of God. And so we've seen about, I think it's about between 60 to 70% of the commitments that have been made have been fulfilled, which is good because it was a two-year commitment plan. And so to be there is good news. Uh, Just uh, last week, after three months being stuck in limbo in the city, our plans were approved with just some minor adjustments for our renovations. And so we'll be talking a little bit more about that. That's good news. Yeah. But you know, it's not enough for a church to make 
investments in facility renovations, we have got to understand the calling that God has given us as individuals and as a community of people and what it looks like for us to be active agents in the mission of God. And so Jesus tells us what that means and he, he gives us a vision of what we are to be about. And so we want to attend to what he says in this text. And he gives us three images, three evocative metaphors, salt, light, and city, a city on a hill. And so look at what he says in chapter 5, verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all who are in the house. Notice Jesus says first, you are the salt of the earth. And then he says, you are the light of the world. Salt and light were two of the most common features of any peasant home in the first century. Everybody had salt and they all had light. And so Jesus draws upon these two common elements to define for us what our relationship is to the surrounding culture. In other words, what should the church's relationship be to the world in which we inhabit? What should Christ church's relationship be to the community here in Sierra Madre and the broader San Gabriel Valley? What should your relationship be as a neighbor on the street you live in to the neighbors around you or as a, as a college student to the university you attend or as an employee to the, the place you work? What should your relationship be to the broader culture and society? And Jesus says, first, here it is, you are the salt of the earth. So let's talk about salt for a minute. Anybody in the house love salt? What about pink Himalayan sea salt, freshly ground? Can I get a witness? What about chili lime salt from Trader Joe's? Anybody took my advice about three months ago and started putting that on everything you eat? Listen, in, in the ancient world, salt served as both a preservative as well as a flavor enhancer. And so on the one hand, it served the role of preserving corroding meat. You know, in the ancient world, if you slaughtered a cow, you chopped it up, you didn't have a refrigeration system where you could stick your, your, your cuts of meat. And so instead, to prevent corrosion of the meat, they would douse it in salt and the salt would prevent decay. And Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are called to prevent decay in the broader culture and society in which you live. If you live in a culture and society where truth and civil discourse is being corroded away, the church is called to be salt in that culture and society and to prevent truth decay, to prevent decay and implosion of civil discourse. If we are living in a culture, in a time and a place where fidelity, faithfulness, loyalty, love is in decay, we are to be a community that serves as a preserving element within the broader culture and society. Where do you see decay around you? Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are called to step in 
and to uphold the truth and uphold fidelity and uphold love and to prevent decay. But you know, salt was not only used to prevent decay, salt was also used to enhance flavor. And you all know that uh, salt is good on just about anything. You know, you got a ribeye that you're throwing on the grill and it is sizzling and it is getting that nice crust on the outside and it is succulent and juicy on the inside. It is going to be glorious and beautiful. It is gonna be, but you know, you wanna make it better? You put salt on it. You have freshly baked chocolate chip cookies, cookies coming out of the oven and you wanna make them better, you put salt on it. You know, you, you've, got, um, you, you've got caramel ice cream, put salt on it. You've got eggs, put salt on it. You've got corn on the cob, put salt on it. Salt makes everything better. Salt enhances the flavor that is there. And Jesus says, this is the role of my people. Those who are true followers of Jesus, you are called to go in and enhance the world in which you live, bringing truth and creativity and beauty and joy and love, and to go to those places where good things are happening and to make them better. And you know, one of our goals as a church has been to step into our community where good stuff is happening and to seek to make it better. And so in this next year, one of the, 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 the spaces where Jonathan Wee is going to be providing us tremendous leadership is engaging with the work that Sierra Madre does to put on different events like music in the park or movies in the park or, you know, the Halloween happenings up and down the street. And we step in and we get involved and we bring creativity and beauty and joy and we seek to make those things better. And this is what salt does. This is what the church those who are followers of Jesus are called to do is to step in and to make the world better. And you know, it's interesting, this negative preventing decay and the positive enhancing flavor capabilities of salt capture two different ways that we can think about our world. On the one hand, our world is broken and it's hurting and it's decaying. It's corrosive in many respects. And where it is, we need to step in and to prevent the decay. That's a testament. Somebody's burning something down. There's something bad happening. I asked them to drive by right at that moment. Here comes some more. But listen, it not only... Uh, not only does the world have kind of like a negative broken aspect, the world is also created and it's good. And there is something that theologians call common grace. Uh, there is good stuff happening out in the world around us in the PTA, at the community garden, with community events, at the restaurant, in the business sector, in politics, in all different places, there are good people doing good things by the virtue of the fact that they are created in the image of God and they're there. And where we see the goodness, we can step in and seek to make it better. So salt prevents decay, it enhances the flavor of what is there. But second, he says, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. Light and darkness cannot coexist. Wherever there is light, it drives out the darkness. And there are dark places in the world. And what Jesus is saying is we are invited to step into the dark places of the world where there is injustice 
and hate and crime and racism and refugees. And uh, uh, you've got kids being shuffled around a foster care system and there's abuse and there's emotional heartache and pain. And Jesus invites us to step into the dark places with the light. He says, you are the light of the world. Light not only drives out the darkness, light also exposes what's in the darkness. I can remember years ago when we first moved to Albuquerque, New Mexico, uh, our family was living on three acres of sagebrush, and we moved into this uh, adobe-walled, kind of, it almost felt like a little bit of outdoor-indoor living situation kind of thing, and uh, we had a problem with cockroaches. And so we called a, like an organic exterminator, and he came and he said, look, he says, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And then Alicia and the girls left and went out of town for a week. <laughs> and they left me all alone in the house with the cockroaches. And I can remember going to bed at night and it just being pitch black. And in my imagination, there were cockroaches all up and down the walls and fall, you know, everywhere. And, and I, I, I had this experience where I was laying in bed one night and I was like kind of dozing off to sleep and a cockroach fell on my face. And I jumped up and screamed like a little child and I, ah! and I flipped on the light and I thought there would be cockroaches everywhere. It was the only cockroach in the room. But light exposes the lies in your own imagination. And some of you imagine false truth about yourself, or you've embraced conspiracy theories about what's happening around us in the world. But the light of God's truth exposes the darkness, and it drives it out. And it says there is truth that you need to live out of and orient your life around. So light exposes what's really in the darkness. And so this is the vision that Jesus gives to us as a church. He says, like salt, you need to be stepping in and preventing decay. Jesus says, like salt, my people enhance the world around them. And like light, my people drive out darkness and they bring truth and illumination to bear where there's confusion and people are being deceived. He says, this is the role of my people in this world. And the observation that I want you to make from this is that the role of the church is to exist for the betterment and for the good of the world. You know, it was William Templeton who said that the church is the only, is the only organization in the world that exists for the good of those who are not yet its members. In other words, it is not good enough for a church to be insular to be looking merely at themselves. It's not good enough for churchgoers, for religious people to merely ask, what are my preferences when it comes to a worship service? What do I want to happen? What music do I want? What time frame do I want? Uh, do I want to wear a mask or not when I come to church or any other of our preferences? That is not the primary question that a follower of Jesus is meant to ask with respect to the church. The primary question is, how can my life individually, how can we corporately, how can we give ourselves away in love for the sake of the world? 
This is what Jesus has done. And so how can we give our lives away to preserve and to enhance and to overcome darkness and to illuminate truth? How can we do that as a people? And if we are going to do that as a church, then two things need to be true of us. Two things need to be true. And look at what Jesus says in verse 16. After giving us these metaphors, he applies it to our lives and he he calls us to action. Look at what he says. He says, in the same way, in the same way that I'm talking about these metaphors, salt and light, he says, you have a responsibility to let your light so shine before people that they may see your good deeds, your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. And you see what Jesus is doing here? He is calling us to a life that is marked by at least two things. He is calling us to two ways of being in this world. Number one, Jesus is calling us to be distinct. If we are gonna be salt and light in Sierra Madre, on our street we live, at the university campus where you work, if we are gonna be agents of God's light and love in this world, number one, it demands that we be distinct. You know, the one thing that salt and light have in common is that they only have influence on the thing they are in contact with when they are distinct from the thing they are in contact with. You know, salt only has influence if it's distinct from the meats. If you had a little shaker of meat flakes and you put that on your meat, it wouldn't do anything to the meat, would it? It wouldn't enhance anything because meat is not going to enhance meat. I guess some of you meat lovers think a little meat can always enhance a little more meat. Can I get a witness on the meat enhance? Yes, brother, I see you. Um, yeah, but, 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 but you get what I'm saying. If the, if the meat is going to be affected by the salt, the salt has to be distinct and different from the meat. And look, if you bring a light into a pitch black cave, if the flashlight is going to illumine the light or illumine the darkness in the cave, it's got to have batteries and the thing's got to work. And if the flashlight is just as dark inside the flashlight as the darkness that's happening in the cave, nothing is going to happen. It only makes an impact when it's distinct from the thing around it. And so too with the church, so too with followers of Jesus, we only have influence on the dominant culture when our lives are distinct from the dominant culture. If we're gonna have an impact, we have got to be different. We have got to be distinct. But distinct in what kind of ways? Listen, I want you to see this in the text. Jesus is not saying that we are primarily distinct by the fact that we have a distinct and different set of opinions. You know, there are neighbors and family members and coworkers and maybe uh, people with, at, at the university that you have different opinions from. I wonder if there's any opinionated people in the house. <laughs> I'm one right here. There are so many opinions out there and some of you hold them very strongly. And some of you pride yourself in having the right and the correct opinion, the Christian opinion. 
But Jesus says what makes us distinct is not so much our opinions that we have. It's not your political opinions. It's not your view of government, the size and role of government or taxation or gun rights or abortion or uh, marriage or any. It's not your opinions that Jesus is talking about here that makes us distinct and light. In fact, Jesus is not even talking about having a distinct set of beliefs. Now, don't misunderstand me. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have a distinct set of beliefs. I believe God raised Jesus from the dead. You know, at the core of Christianity, like I believe in God, the Father, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ's only son, born of a virgin, you know, uh, crucified under Pontius Pilate, raised again on the third day, coming again in power and glory to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I, I believe, and Christians do have a distinct set of beliefs, but it is not our distinct set of beliefs that is the light that Jesus is talking about here. Notice the light Jesus is talking about here. He says, in the same way, let your light, what light? He says, let your light show shine before others. What light, Jesus? That they may see your good works. What is the light Jesus is talking about? It is your good works. It's what later Jesus says, actually in the next little passage below, your righteousness. It is your character. It is your way of life. Friends, this is where Christians will make the biggest impact. It is when our character is being molded and shaped and formed by the values and the priorities of Jesus. And where are those values and priorities on display in the most brilliant of fashion? Well, it's right here in the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, I think when Jesus is talking about salt and light, he is talking specifically about the way of life he is describing in the Sermon on the Mount. In other words, if you are going to be distinct, it is being distinct because you are poor in spirit. You're humble. You're meek. You hunger and thirst for justice in the world. You are merciful. You, you are pure in heart. You're a peacemaker not a warmonger in this world. You, you, are, you are persecuted and you endure it for the sake of the gospel. You are a truth speaker. Your yes is yes and your no is no. You are faithful to your covenants. You do not objectify people of the opposite sex. You deal with your anger by extending forgiveness. You love not just your friends and your neighbors, you love even your enemies. And you, you, you go the extra mile. Like this is what Jesus is talking about. You don't do your deeds of righteousness to be seen by people to put on a show. No, you do it from the heart. You fast, you pray, you give to be seen by God. You are not judgmental. You are not anxious about money. You, you're not worried. You, you are, this is what Jesus is talking about here. He says, when my people are embodying the Sermon on the Mount, they are distinct in this world. But here's the problem uh, with evangelicals in our world today with our people in our world today, is that very often we are distinct in our opinions and we're distinct in our beliefs, but we are not all that distinct in our way of life and our character. 
we are what a recent, a, a, a recent uh, secular writer says, uh, quote, he says, people in the church, this was his observation about church-going people, he says they've adopted the values and the practices and the way of speaking and treating people of the world, but they've done it with just a twist of Christianity. And he talks about how much Christianity has adopted mainstream cultural values of celebrity and fashion and music and modish political activism and a message of self-love, but all of that just with a twist of Christianity. Or maybe they've stormed the Capitol and they've adopted nationalism all with a twist of Christianity. Or they've adopted right-wing business-oriented uh, capitalistic self-enrichment hubristic jingoism with a twist of Christianity. Or, or there's progressive Christians who promote the usual left-wing causes with a twist of Christianity. And he says, quote, while different in beliefs, such people share patterns of thought, values, and ways of life of everybody around them. And then this author who is not a Christian says this. He says, quote, so if Christianity is such an inessential add-on, why become a Christian? I am not religious, so it's not my place to dictate to Christians what they should do and should not believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their beliefs should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there is nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. And he says, this sadly appears to have been true for a, a recent celebrity pastor who fell from grace and was once again uh, revealed to be another sexual predator. Or as another secular author named Julian Barnes wrote in his book, Nothing to Be Afraid of, he said this, quote, there seems to be little point in a religion that is merely a weekly social event as opposed to one which tells you exactly how to live, which colors and stains everything. He goes on, what's the point of faith unless you, you and it are serious? Seriously serious. Unless your religion fills, directs, and stains and sustains your entire life. In other words, if we want to make an impact on the culture in which we inhabit, our places of employment, the university, you know, with the roommates, our homes, among our family members, we have got to be people that take discipleship to Jesus and this unique, countercultural, incredibly difficult and life-giving way of life seriously. And we have got to be a community that embraces and embodies that way of life. And so Jesus says, I am calling you to be light and to let your good works, your way of life, your character, your way of being in this world shine. He says, be distinct, but secondly, not only be distinct, Jesus is calling us in our text to be engaged. You know, if you want to enhance the flavor of that meat, the salt has got to get into it. Sometimes you gotta even put it in a saline solution overnight to just get the flavor into that bird, right? Can I get a witness on the flavor into the bird? The saline solution, I see you in the back, Peggy. It's got to have contact to make an influence. If the salt just sits 
on the table, but it doesn't get into the meat, the meat's not gonna be enhanced. The salt's gotta get into the meat. That's basic, right? And if, if the church wants to make an impact in the world, we not only need to be distinct, we have gotta get out of the shaker and into the meat, if you catch my drift. We gotta step into the places where there is deep hurt and need. We have got to step alongside of the people who are already doing good work, who may not be followers of Jesus in order to better enhance the work they're doing at the school or at the hospital or in the community or at the garden or wherever it is where you're engaged. Get involved. And of course, what often happens, and you've seen it as well as I have, the longer people are in church oftentimes, the more isolated they become from unchurched people, from people who have different ideas and worldviews and opinions than they do. And all of a sudden, you know, now their hairdresser's a Christian and their accountant's a Christian and their t-shirts are Christian and their bumper stickers, their cars are Christian. Like they've just kind of withdrawn. And if you have retreated from the meat, you're not going to make an impact. And we've got to step into not only the people around us and what they're doing that's good, we also have to go to those places of pain. You know, where there is the severest kind of darkness in the world, where there is enslavement still, where there is abuse, where there is radical injustice, there are the places where the church must be. We are called to be those who engage ourselves in the places of pain. And you know, that's one of the the reasons why in very recognizably very modest attempts, our church has sought to partner alongside of organizations like the Union Rescue Mission, who is doing incredible work for Christ in the heart of, of, of the deep pain of homelessness in our culture. That's why we partner with the Elizabeth House, who is working with moms who are on the streets and trying to have babies and keep those babies. And that's why we have, we have um, volunteers who are going and serving at local schools in order to help at-risk kids and to, to, to get them what they need. That's why we have people like Athlete Sapp who are taking, uh, who are leading trips down to uh, Nairobi, Kenya in order to work with at-risk boys in the slums of Nairobi. And so this is the kind of work we are called to as the followers of Jesus. We are called to be engaged. And so this is, the vocation of the church. We are called to be salt and light in the world in which we inhabit. What does that demand? It demands us to be distinct, but it also demands us to be engaged. But thirdly, we we not only need to be distinct and engaged, if we are actually gonna do this, we need to be dependent. And let me just say this in closing. You know, I don't want you to get the wrong impression from what I'm saying. I don't mean to communicate through such strong language, hopefully saying at least a word or two that might be marginally inspirational. I do try to get there to that inspirational bit. Right, Lexi? Yeah. She's inspired. I can see her over there. Um, I don't mean to act as if the world is ours to save and that, 
you and I are the heroes and we just need to go out there and to prevent the decay and to enhance what's there and to drive out the darkness because truth be told, there is decay in our own hearts, isn't there? There's corrosion going on even in our own community among relationships. There is, there's implosion in your own homes and in your own marriages. There's darkness within us. I'm a person, I need light in my own heart and life. I have lies that go into my head that I tell myself, I need the light to break in and drive it out. And so do you, don't you? We are a community of people that is in desperate need of a power and a savior outside of ourselves. And you know what scripture says is that the true, the real true light of the world is not me and it's not you, it is Jesus. Jesus is the one who came into the darkness to overcome the darkness. You know, it's interesting, even though throughout the New Testament, Jesus is, is often referred to as the light. I mean, it's a regular metaphor to describe Jesus and his ministry. Jesus is never called salt in the earth. And I think the reason for that is that Jesus did not simply come to prevent further decay in the world. Jesus came to eradicate all decay in the world. And Jesus didn't simply come to enhance what's kind of good here and make it a little bit better. Jesus came actually to bring new creation and to make all things new. And so our invitation if we are really gonna be people who are distinct and different is to recognize that we ourselves need this kind of saving work in our own hearts and lives. And this is where Jesus begins the entire sermon that he's preaching. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who are broken and needy and humble, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is when we recognize that we need God's light in our own life and we cry out to him, and we can bring our own brokenness on our journey to be distinct and engaged in the world, we can bring that. It's only then that we can bring it with true grace and we can point people to Jesus who can ultimately drive out their darkness. And so may God empower us in the months and in the years ahead together to be a community that is well aware of our need for God's grace that is radically honest about the brokenness in our own hearts and lives that is real. And may we be a community that takes discipleship to Jesus in just with utter seriousness, embodying this radically alternate way of life in this world. And then may God use us to make an impact to be salt and light in this community. Let's pray together and let's just ask that God would do that among us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come to you now and we just confess that we are a people in need of your grace and mercy in our own hearts and lives. God, there's darkness in us. We need your light. There is corrosion in us. We need you to heal us. And so we pray, God, that you would make us freshly dependent upon your grace. And in depending upon your grace, would you break in and would you continue to change us and mold us and shape us 
so that we could be your faithful people for the life of this world. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen.